All right, we are going to be bouncing around a little bit. Um, as you may or may not know, um, this is part two of the State of the Church Address. So last week I actually started, um, was going to do a little two-week mini-series on the state of the church and talk about reminding us of who we are, what our identity is, what our mission is as a church family, and then how we go about um, achieving that or, or, or going about fulfilling that. And so um, this morning, I want to uh, really focus on that. If you did not get last week's message, um, then I encourage you to go online. You can find it on our website at www.faithpeshtigo.com. Or you can subscribe to it on iTunes um, or anything like that, uh, any other podcast service. You, uh, I, would, I would encourage if you missed last week, listen, go back and listen to that because everything that we're talking about today um, is, uh, is done through the lens of what we talked about last week. So last week was really the foundation and what we are all about. And then this week is kind of how, um, how we are living that out together. So as we embark on that this morning, let's pray. Father, thank you. God, thank you again for the time this morning. What a gift to be able to worship you, to be able to sing songs, to glorify your name and praise you together as a family. I pray, God, that that worship would continue now. That you would, God, that you would help me to speak words that would be faithful to your word. And that would equip and encourage us and build us up so that we can love one another and love you more fully. And that we would be a family that together is sent on mission. God, I pray that this wouldn't just be words this morning, but that you, um, that you would stir our hearts to move and to follow you in obedience pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So kind of as a recap of, um, a quick recap of last week, we said that our identity statement as a church is that we are God's family on mission. And if you've been here for a while, you have certainly heard that or should have heard that. Um, if you haven't been here, that may be new to you. Um, but it's just our way of kind of, uh, of, of communicating the great commandment and the great commission. So we're not creating anything new. We're not um, uh, making up a new purpose or a new anything. We're just saying for, um, for the history of the church, they have been living this out. They have been seeking to love God fully, to love others well, and to um, declare the gospel and make disciples who make disciples. And so um, churches all throughout history have phrased that in so many different ways. We just say that that's what we're trying to live out is that we are God's family on mission. And we unpack that a lot more, but, but really succinctly, it is just we are declaring that we are gods, that we belong to him, we are created by him and for him. And we would say that that identity changes the way that we live. Because if I think that I am created by me and for me, that affects the way that I view the world around me and the way I view other people around me um, and the way I view church. But if I understand that I was created by God and for God, then that changes everything. And then if I understand that I not only am God's, but I'm, that we are God's family, that we aren't just um, redeemed individuals as individuals with individual relationships with God, but that he redeems for himself a people. 
that we are brothers and sisters because um, we have been redeemed by our Father, that affects the way that I function in the church. That if I believe that you are my brothers and sisters and not just um, people who happen to go to the same church service as me, that changes how I live. But we say we're not only God's, we're not only God's family, but that we are God's family who is sent on mission. And we, um, there's so many places we could go for this, but we talked about 1 Peter 2 and how that kind of encapsulates all of these ideas. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so all of those things, we belong to God as his family and we are sent so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. And we talked about how all of that, those things is what we would call the vine. That is the life of the church. That is what matters. All of the other things, all of our systems and structures and all of that, that all exists to support the vine, to support that growth. And that's what we want to look at. That's why I say that it, it doesn't matter how many kids we have or how excited they are about the weekend or how much they say they love the weekend. What we are watching is to see, is there vine growth? Does this spark something in them that carries fruit? That's what we want to see. But then we did talk about how the trellis is important. Those, the things um, to support the growth of the vine. The vine without any support just kind of collapses on itself. And so it's important that we strategically think about how do we support and encourage this growth? When do we need to enrich the soil? When do we need to provide a, a support structure? What, what do we need to do with that? How do we do this? And when we think about this, we, we think about this in two big kind of categories. One is we, we think about the, the trellis and, and the support systems. We think about environments that we create and, and resources that we use and that, that kind of equip. And so just to explain the differences so that we can go into this and understand we're all speaking the same language. When I say like a resource to, to equip, that's like the, the fertilizer. That's like the thing that, that we say, okay, we need some help in this specific area. And so um, that's, those are specific trainings. That would be like um, classes or, or conferences or articles or podcasts or something like that. And so we might say, hey, we want to grow. We need to grow in our handling of the word. And so we're going to do this conference. Like when we did the faith conference, we did it around that. We said we want to equip our people to be able to handle the word of God better and to really just dive into it more and more. And so that's what we mean when we say like resources and specific help. Again, I think of it in terms of like a fertilizer or, or, or trellis or something like that, that that supports in this specific area. But an environment is different. An environment is a space that is created for our identity and our mission to be lived out. So in the plant analogy, it would be like the greenhouse. It is the environment in which all of this care and nurturing of the vine exists. It's, it's, it's where it all um, takes place. It's designed for the ideal environment for a vine to grow. And as leaders, we, we try to create an environment that kind of um, encourages that growth. And there are 
a couple of things. So like for us, we would call, we would say that those two main environments that we do here are this Sunday morning worship. That is one major environment. And then the other one is what we call gospel communities, which are groups of people who are living this mission out in their areas. And there, to, to talk about those, we need to understand two really important things about environments. They're essentially, they're, they're limitations, but they're important things to understand. One is that environments don't create growth. They just serve as an environment to encourage it. So you can't, an environment won't in and of itself create the thing that it's trying to encourage. So for example, like, you, right, you can't walk into a greenhouse and become a vine, right? That doesn't happen. You don't walk in there and just become that thing. Maybe a, maybe a better example that'll hit closer to home for, for, certainly for me, if not for you, is, is the environment of the gym, okay? So when I was in California, um, at our church was really gracious, and they gave us all um, gift memberships. They gifted us memberships to, uh, to the local gym, which I was like, man, that is awesome. I'm going to go, and I'm going to get in shape. Thing is, I didn't get in shape, but I went. I went all the time. I went and I, and, and, and I went for regularly for a while. And then I wondered like, man, I noticed I'm not really like, I'm not in any better shape. And then when I evaluated what I was doing, what I did was I would go in, and I know this would be shocking for some of you to hear this about me, but I just went around and talked to all the different people at all the different machines and all the different things. <laughs> shocking, I know, for me. I just like, hey, what are you doing? Hey, where are you from? What are you doing? Well, you know, all this stuff. I get excited about all that. And then I would leave. I would go away. And the only thing I'd worked on, you know, or worked out were my vocal cords and, and all that stuff and, and maybe some bits that I was using for comedy or whatever. That's it. That's all I got. I didn't do any exercise. The gym couldn't do that for me. It can't get me in shape. It only is an environment. It is an intentional environment. You go around and the weights are there. They even give you instructions on how to use these things. There's other people who want to get fit there. Sometimes you even have personal trainers who are there. They're willing to help you, but but it can't get you in shape. So that's one thing you have to understand about environments. The other thing is that they aren't designed for your flesh, but for your spirit. So good ones will be uncomfortable. So like we said last week, the first thing you notice when you walk into a greenhouse is that it's hot. It's hot and it's humid and it's uncomfortable. And if you complained about that, they would say, right, it's not designed for you. It's designed for the plants. That's why it's hot and humid, because it's good for them. The Apostle Paul talks about, in Romans, talks about this battle between our flesh and our spirit. And he uses the flesh as this, our sinful desires of, of how, the things that we want. Basically, when we are saying, I exist for me. And he says, those are those desires. But the spirit in you is, is, is being, is, you're being filled with that, and it's shaping you and changing you. And there's this battle that goes on inside of you. What's really important that we understand is that so many of us, hear this please, so many of us want to grow desperately in the Spirit. We want to be closer to God. I talk to people all the time who say, I just want to know God more. I want to be closer to Him. And so we want our spirit to grow, but we want to do it in an environment where our flesh is comfortable. And it doesn't work. Any more than a greenhouse can encourage the growth of a vine when it is set up for human comfort. 
So when you think about these environments, just keep those two things in mind. This cannot create growth in me, and it isn't going to be comfortable for my flesh. That's what we see in Acts 2, right? That's the environment that we see. There's so much we could go into this. We talked about this a little bit last week, but the big stuff is in what we kind of set out there in bold in in verse 46, where he talks about day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That's describing the environment in which all these incredible things happen. So they saw these miraculous works. They saw people being saved and being added to their number daily. Awe had come upon all of them. They were selling their possessions and giving, giving and, and, and um, providing for each other's needs. But it's happening in this environment. And it's such a simple environment. They were together. They ate together. They worshiped God together. They were together one another daily, with one another daily in their homes. We don't know exactly what they were like, but we know that these are kind of the things that were happening. Those things didn't create growth. It wasn't like they started meeting together. and like, okay, if we just get together every day at the same time and eat the same meal, then all of a sudden these miracles are going to happen. No, but when God was working in their hearts, the Holy Spirit was moving in their lives, and then they got together in that environment, amazing things happened. And so we have those environments. One is the, the Sunday morning. And some of this is to fulfill biblical commands. God says, look, you need to do this. And one of them is, he says, you need to worship me together. Like, you need to be together. We need to gather together. Paul says in, in Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So that's why we do what we do, is we create this environment for our church family to worship God. Everything is designed with that in mind. That's why we we preach from God's word, reminding us that we belong to him. We sing songs that remind us of of the majesty of our king. We we connect with one another's family. I love sitting here and sometimes sitting in the hallway and and watching as people come in and and greet one another and and give a hug or or laugh or or whatever the case is and just greet one another and catch up. That's why we take communion together. It's all things that God mandates, but he mandates them for our good. And, and they're not like mandates of like, you better do this or else. It's like, this is for your good. Like you, this, is, this is the right kind of environment to do this in. And it's where some people hear the good news for the first time. It's a wonderful environment. But no matter how good that environment is, it cannot create worship. No matter how good the music is, it can't make your heart sing. No matter how applicable or clear the teaching is, it can't bear fruit that is in keeping with the Spirit. It can't do it. You can show up to Sunday morning, week after week, and there could be no vine. But if you want to grow, if you want to worship God, if that's stirring you, if the Holy Spirit has, has transformed you and brought your heart to life, then this is a great environment to do that. 
the music that is selected. You notice, like, we, we, don't, we don't select songs here um, based on tempo or anything like that, it's, or style. It's based on what we're singing. And so you can notice, like maybe you've noticed before that there's a, there's a pattern. There's like, a, like there's an invocation and a call to worship. And then there's a song of, of repentance where we are together singing about how we are coming before our God and, and declaring our need for a Savior and confessing our sin. And then songs that, that declare the gospel and our redemption that is found in Jesus. That's all designed not to try to make someone who doesn't want to worship say, oh, I like that music, so I guess I can kind of nod along with it, but to take the heart that is crying out for God and to say, sing, sing these words. Sing these words together. That's what it's designed for. The way we preach, the way we pray together, the way we have communion together, it's all done with the intent of ushering people the people of God, into the presence of God to worship our God. And God tells us to do that intentionally and regularly. In Hebrews 10, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Like we're commanded to be together regularly for this purpose so we can intentionally consider. I mean, think about it like that. They, they were thinking about how do, we, how do we equip people more? How do we stir one another up to good works? They're not just showing up and getting a teaching or whatever and then leaving. They're saying like, man, how do we, how do we stir this up? And so he says, get, get together regularly. Don't, don't abandon that. But it goes even deeper than that. They're, There's an extensive list of commands from Jesus and the apostles on how the church is to interact with one another. We call them the the one another's, and there's 59 of them. 59 times it says there are these comments and these these, um, commands of including the phrase one another. And so not to get too deep into the weeds of, of Greek, but the Greek for one another is one another. And for that, you need one another. Okay? You tracking with me so far? You know, I just dove right into the scholarly, off the scholarly cliff right there. So you can't do the one another's without one another. And so to be with one another, you have to actually be interacting with one another in life, in real community. I mean, of those one another's, I mean, they're, so, they're all over Scripture. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. And we would say that you need an environment to live those out. And you need to be in real community. And that's why I would say in a church this size, that just doesn't happen here. And you know, what I mean by that, I'm not saying that people in here are fake or trying to be fake. Like that's, a, that's an overused criticism of the church. My experience with most people in the church is everyone's just trying to figure it out. Like there's very few people that walk into church being like, I'm going to be fake today. It's just we're just trying to figure it out. And, and the reality is that no matter how real we want to be, this is not completely real life. Like, no teenager normally sits here and listens to a dude like me for this song. But they do it right now because, like, that's what you do. Like, it's not completely real. If we want real life, we need to get a bunch of GoPros, which, if you don't know, is like little action cameras. We'll strap it to your forehead, 
And we'll start recording 10 minutes before you left for church this morning and the ride here, all the way up until you walked in the door. Like my guess is that that would not be the full representation. Like you're not fully representing all of that here right now. And that makes sense. Like it would be kind of weird if you continued the argument as you walked into church and be like, and another thing, like as you're walking in here, we'd all be kind of like, oh my goodness, like maybe move over. All right. So like, I get it. I get, I mean, like that happens, but you need people in your life who know that's happening. You can't just go to a, a study with all like men. You can't just go to a study with all men and tell them how you're doing and loving your wife. They need to see how you're loving your wife. Like you, you don't need, like, you can't just go around and tell people what's going on at work. You need people who are intimately involved in that, who can say, like, oh, man, I know I'm walking alongside of you in, or along, alongside of you in this. So we say real community. And, you know, what do we mean by that? Like, one of those is real life. It needs to be real life. Another thing it needs to be, I'm convinced of from Scripture, is that it needs to be cross-generational. Like, a family is not just, if we're a family— if we're a club, we can be single interest, single life stage, single everything, but not in a family. In a family, we need spiritual mothers and fathers, spiritual grandmothers and grandfathers, nieces and nephews. Like that's what a family is. You need those different voices. You need the chaos that some of those bring into your world and, and they need you to, to be there for them and, and you need one another in that way. And it also needs to be multiplying. Like a healthy family multiplies. And I know there's always exceptions to this, but right now, the course that my children are on, right now, given that if nothing else catastrophic happens in their lives or in my lives, if they are living in my basement when they're 40, that's going to be disappointing. And yet, we function that way in the church. We think like, oh, this small group and I, we've been together for 25 years. Oh. That's not, that's not the thing. Like healthy families reproduce. We send people out. Like I send them off. Like I'm going to send my children off one day. One glorious day. <laughs> they, they will go and they will, they will start whatever. Whether they get married or not. They will, they will go and they will reproduce in, in, in the Lord. They will, they will go and they'll pour into others. Hopefully the way that I pour into them. That's what needs to happen. And that's what's happening in Acts 2. Like we look at Acts 2, they were so close, they were so family, and you realize that just a few chapters later, they're going to be scattered because of persecution. They're going to go. They're not going to be together like they were in that moment forever. You might say, you know what, I've got a group of guys that I've been getting together with to watch football with for years, and that, that's my community. And that for sure has elements of community. I'm not devaluing that. It's great to get together with friends with common interests and whatever. It's wonderful. But I would ask, is it intentionally Christ-centered? Are you gathering for the purpose of prayer and edification to practice the one another's, to be on mission together? And if you're saying, I would love to do that, but I don't know. Like some of you are probably saying, yeah, I have that. Awesome. Great. Go get them. But for those of you who are saying, I would love to have that, but I don't. I don't know. I don't have, I don't have older friends or younger friends that I can help and walk alongside. I, I, don't, I don't have a group of people, a community of people that will support me in the mission or that I can support in the mission. 
That's why we have gospel communities. It's not, a, it's not a program or a class or anything like that. It's just an environment. It's just saying, okay, here's a group of people who are saying, we want to reach out, we want to make disciples and make disciples, and we need some help in doing that, so we're getting together intentionally for that purpose. But just like Sunday morning, you can show up to something like that and have nothing meaningful happen. I mean, imagine if in, in California when I was doing the gym thing, and I'm like, oh, this isn't working. You know what? I'm going to get a group of people together, and we're going to go to the gym together because I hear that accountability is helpful. But if I just take a bunch of people who think and act like me, we're just going to be a group of people who are going to go around and talk to everybody in the gym. And then we're going to leave. And then we're all going to have the opinion that gym is the worst because none of us are in shape. Problem was in the gym. Problem was that we weren't intentionally desiring to say, you know what, this is what we're going to do. This is why we're here. And so we're going to take steps to ensure that that happens. You have to invest you have to pray for one another. You have to pray for one another when, you, when you're not sure how to pray. You dig in the word together when you're not just being told exactly where and how to do so. You be willing to share stories and put yourself out there and say, how does the gospel apply to this? And be vulnerable in that way. We have to be willing to ask hard questions. And many people say that that kind of community isn't for them. It's not their thing. But like we said, environments that encourage growth are uncomfortable, and that's nothing new. Look, when you, when you read Acts 2, it can be so simple and so easy to kind of dramatize what's happening there and just kind of put rose-colored glasses and look at it and be like, ah, oh, they just loved each other. So what a great community. Like, it'd be so awesome to be in that. We often gloss over the fact that it had to be incredibly uncomfortable for them. These are people who, before the Holy Spirit resurrected their hearts, who wouldn't even eat to, together. They could barely speak to one another. They often would have thought, like, well, you're, you're the reason why we are in the situation that we're in. We're in the place that we're in is because of you. I mean, imagine finding yourself in a home with a person who you blame as being the reason why you are in the trouble that you're in. Someone that you've never spoken to, someone that you would never associate with, someone that you consider your enemy, and now all of a sudden you find yourself selling all of your possessions so that they don't go without. It was incredibly uncomfortable. It was incredibly awkward. But they couldn't help themselves. Because they were so transformed by the Holy Spirit that when they got together, that's just what happened. I mean, that's why, have you ever wondered, that's why so much of the New Testament is written telling people how to get along with one another. It's because this is a very real situation. They're constantly having to tell one. That's why there's so many one another's. Like, be kind to one another, be compassionate, be forgiving. Put others' interests above your own. He has to constantly, like all the writers of the New Testament, have to constantly remind the church to do these things because it wasn't just happening naturally. It was things that they had to intentionally pursue in the power of the Spirit. So it wasn't a comfortable environment, but it was in that environment that the growth that we see in Acts 2 happened. And so that's why we have the environments we have. That's why we have Sunday morning. That's why we have gospel communities. But we still need help. Right? 
Like the environments themselves, like the, the early church wasn't just thrown into a room and they said, well, figure it out now. They're, they, they helped one another. They instructed one another. They devoted themselves to the teachings and to prayer. They sought God together. They, they were teachable. And we want to do those things too. We want to, we want to support you as you live this identity out in these environments and out into the world. And so that's why we do things, like certain specific things, times that we look and we say, hey, we want to build this area up. Let's, let's give some more instruction right here. Let's, let's really um, spark something here. And sometimes that equipping is meant to provide kind of a fertilizer of sort to, to enrich the soil and spark growth. And so it's more of a proactive, like, equipping or instruction. And we see that, again, all through Scripture, but uh, very famously in Acts 18, where Apollos, who was new, newer in the faith, but he was very dynamic in his communication, and he was um, doing wonderful things in spreading the word of God. And says so he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So they looked at him they're saying, this is great. Like you're doing great. You're doing the mission. You're doing, this is awesome. But hey, let me, let me just pull you aside and we want to instruct you in this area. I want to help you understand baptism a little bit better. So we need to do that to one another and for one another. We see it in Paul confronting Peter in Galatians 2. We see it as Peter declares um, about foods being clean after his vision in Acts 10. In Acts 15, we see the Jerusalem council kind of weighing all this stuff out and saying, okay, these non-Jews that are coming to faith in Jesus, like, what should we do? Like, should they be circumcised? Should they, like, what do we, what, what, what law should they be following? And they're wrestling through that together and then instructing the, the church on how to, how, what is the faithful way to live out God's word. And so we do classes, we do Bible studies, we do conferences. Those are all meant to equip and encourage the growth of the vine. But there's a warning that comes with that. There's a danger. There's a temptation. The temptation is to stay there and stay in that place because it feels good. When Lauren, um, when Lauren and I had, when we, well, when we had our child, when Lauren had our child, um, like our third one, um, our hospital had gone through some changes and they were, they were trying to, they were entering the competition to try to like get more moms. It was like this big, I don't know if this happens around here, but, but when we were back in Colorado, it was. So like hospitals were competing for moms to come and give birth at their hospitals. So they would do all kinds of great things. And so we gave, um, there I did it again. We gave birth. That sounds weird. All right. Um, we had three kids at the same hospital. Okay. The first time was not, it was pre-renovations. All right. Um, it was just closest to our house. And, um, but the first time when we had, when we had Silas, our feeling was, man, we're just so excited to get this adventure underway. Like, let's just go. We don't need to stay in this hospital anymore. Like, we're ready. He's healthy. Like, let's go. We were so naive. We didn't know how awesome it was to have someone else deal with a baby crying and waking up in the middle of the night. So we're like, yeah, let's go do it. So by the second time, we were smarter. And so we stayed until they dragged us out of that place. Like, because we had grandparents watching Silas, and then we had Judah, and we had people watching Judah, and we're like, this is amazing. And, and so we just stayed until they dragged us out. Well, by the third one, we got dumb again. And we were sitting there, and we thought, well, I had to work, and Lauren could have stayed an extra day, but 
um, she decided, you know what, I'll just, I'll check out today. And so she goes to check out, and, and I've left, and she's, um, they've done everything. They need to do all the paperwork, and she gets um, dressed, and um, she's got her baggage. Everything's ready. She's waiting for her mom to come and pick her up. And while she's sitting there, someone comes by with the cheesecake trolley, which is a trolley of cheesecake. <laughs> and Lauren looks at it. And she's like, can I have cheesecake? And they say, oh, where aren't you checking out? And she's like, looking at her bags and fully dressed, no. <laughs> and they, said, well, they laughed and they, they let her have some cheesecake. And she's eating the cheesecake going, I want to stay here forever. And I get it. Because it feels good, right? Like it feels like, oh man, good things are happening here. I just want to stay here. I don't want to go out there. And that can happen with Bible studies and classes. You get in that environment where you're studying the word of God together and you're with other people and you're sharing concerns and they're praying for you and it stirs something, it equips you and, it's, and, and, and you feel good about it, you feel closer to God. But it's meant to bear fruit out in your life. And so when that class ends, you're meant to continue to live that in an environment of real community. And what so often happens is that we get done with something like that and then we go back to our regular way of living. We're not in the word. We're not with one another. We're not praying for one another. And we feel distant from God. And what's the first thing we think? I need another class. I need to find another study. But it wasn't the study. We've said this so many times. It was being in the word of God with the people of God. That's, that's what you need. And so everything that we do when we equip one another, we do it so that you can go and live that out and equip others. Paul, well, or the writer of Hebrews, depending on what you think about that, says this. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What the author is saying here to the church is, look, you, you should be ready for solid food, but you're not. Like, you still need us to feed you these things. And he says it's hard to, under, it's hard to explain to you right now because, because you've become dull of hearing. You've heard all these things. And you're like, yeah, I got it. Listen, as a church, we have to understand that maturity is not evidenced by just knowing a lot of facts and saying, oh yeah, I heard that. Oh yeah, I know that. Maturity, maturity is based on spirit-filled obedience to Christ and his word. That's maturity. And so when this author is saying, hey, you need to be able to handle this word. You, need to be, you should be on to solid food. What that has been translated to in our, in our culture is, okay, I just need to hear deeper teaching. That's my problem. I need deeper teaching. So I need meat. I, need, I want solid food. I need meat. That is, like, I want steak in my teaching. And so that's a common phrase. And I understand what you're saying. But what we have to be careful of is if we just keep eating that, like, eating steak is not that big of a deal. A two-year-old can do it. 
if you cut it up in small enough pieces and give it to them, like a one-year-old can eat steak, I think. Is that right? 18 months? Good. I'm getting some, maybe. My kids ate steak at one-year-old, so. Um, Like, they... They, they can do that. If you get it small enough and bite-sized enough and prepare it just right and hand it, then yes, a one-year-old can eat steak. So your ability to just eat steak or your desire to have like really deep teaching isn't the mark of maturity. What Paul says is it's in preparing it. Like, can you take the steak and can you prepare it and can you make this meal out of this and can you hand it to someone else and you can, can you help others? Can you cut it in small pieces for the new believers in the church and can you, can you help them and teach them how to prepare that? Like, that is the mark of maturity. So sitting in a class and hearing and being like, oh yeah, I understand that. Oh yeah, that's interesting. And oh, I want a deeper study so that I, so I spark something else in me is not enough. It's to take that and say, okay, now can I go and can I handle God's word well with the people in my workplace and in my neighborhood and my family? It's all meant to be a spark. I mean, I, like I mentioned, the faith conference, we wanted to spark a love reignite a love for the Bible and being able to handle the Bible well so that you could spark that love in someone else. We didn't do the faith conference last fall to spark a love for conferences. We don't do Disciple Now to spark a love for Disciple Now. We do it so that we would spark a love for Christ and a love for others so that these teenagers could go and make disciples who make disciples. Like, we don't teach about worship so that we can just think and know more things about worship. If we teach about a worship, it is to enrich your worship of God on Sunday morning, which could then carry over to you worshiping God, enriching your worship of God in your home. Or we might do a conference on prayer, which can be practiced and lived out in the context of gospel community, where you're building one another up and enriching their prayer life as God is enriching yours, which would then change the way that you pray for people at work. That's why we equip. That's that resource. But it's not the only thing that we do. We also do, sometimes the resources are just to provide healing and comfort and support and care that back up these words that we're saying. So we're proclaiming these, this good news about Jesus and then we back it up with works. I mean, that's what Paul in, in Philippians, he's, he's thanking them for supporting him and how they've cared for him and, and provided for him while he's in prison and how, what a wonderful gift that's been. It's encouraging him and supporting him as he proclaims the gospel because not only for him to encourage him and strengthen him, but also as a witness to all the people who saw him in prison. And now there's this people, this group of people from miles away who are sending him food and and care and money. They're saying, where does this come from? And it provides a backbone and flesh to the gospel that he is proclaiming. So we provide things like counseling and grief share and quilting. Like we have make quilts for people in the hospital and funeral services. We provide things and meal train and financial help through benevolence. But that ministry is meant to comfort so that you can offer that comfort to others. It's meant to care for you so that then you can go and care for others. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those 
who are in any affliction. So people, we have meal train that provides meals for people who, who need them in, in a situation. So if you have an illness in your home or you have, um, you know, something's going on in your world and sometimes it's just super helpful to have somebody just bring some food over to you so that you don't have to worry about that. And so we have a meal train that does that. But the point of that is to care for you in that time and then you're able then to care for others in those times. Like if you just said, if you just got on the meal train and you're like, that was awesome. And so then you sign up again and then again, and we're like, hey, man, what else is going on? Oh, nothing. It was just really awesome to have people bring me food. That'd be kind of weird, right? I mean, it'd be kind of awesome if you got away with it, but it'd be kind of weird. Like you just have to, like the whole point of that is like, hey, we want to carry you and restore you. You're in a season where you need some extra help. And so now we, we did that and restored you to health so that now you can go and you can help others and restore them. And as we do that more and more, it spills out into the world around us. And the words that we are proclaiming now have flesh and bone to them. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we try, Robbie and I especially, and, and I know Jeff will be more in this too, as a part of our role as pastors and shepherds is we're out in the community declaring the gospel and, and trying to, to get into different influential places in the community to try to reach people in those areas. And so we've talked about how CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, is one of the things that you guys have rallied around and have been volunteers in. And so ki- kids who are in the court system have an advocate who are, is meeting with them and caring for them every week. And so when we have been declaring about how God cares about these kids, we can say it all we want. But then when they say, man, we'd love to provide Christmas, like some Christmas gifts for these kids. Do you think that we could figure out how to get some donations for that? And Robbie says, yes. And then this church responds like you did, providing the most incredible display of toys and books and clothing for volunteers to come and pick from and to give to those kids, that makes our message to them real. It gives it structure. It makes them think, oh, that's what you mean when you say that Jesus cares about these kids. But the burden that I've felt is I don't want that to just be for us. I want it to be for you too. I want you to have access to this family to rally this family and mobilize this family so that as you are sharing the gospel and loving people and serving people in their time of need, that you can be backed up by the same church family, the same army of people. So that's what I want us to do in this next year. That's kind of a focus of ours this next year. So that just like when we talk about um, with, the, with the meal train, another example is did you know that if you, if you go to the hospital, because you have, like if you have a coworker who's sick and is in the hospital, I want you to go and be light in there. Like you don't need to call a ministry leader to go do that. You go do that. You have the same Holy Spirit. Go and minister to them. And when you go, how awesome would it be to take something with you? And did you know that we have people who make quilts for the sole purpose 
of giving them to you so that you can take them to the person you're ministering to. So that you can say, you know what, this, this, is, this was made by some people in our church. And when you're covering up with this, I just want you to be reminded that, that we're covering you in prayer. That I'm praying for you all the time. Like, how amazing is that? Like we're already doing so many of those things and I just feel this burden of like we can be doing more. We want to be doing more. Mobilizing this army of people to relieve the suffering and bring hope to our community in the name of Jesus to back up the words that we are proclaiming. Like we have a big family, especially for this area. We have a big church family so we can tackle big things in this area. We have to. Like just look around. I mean, suicide is on the rise. Divorce is all around us. We have kids going to school hungry and without proper clothing. We have families that are ravaged by drugs. We have people who are grieving alone. We have people who, and families and, and adults and veterans who are on the streets with no shelter. We have a responsibility. Who else is going to do it? We can wait for, wait for the next election and hope that something else, like, come on. We're the church. And what I love about this church is the response that has always been, yes, let's do it. And here's what I'm trying to figure out how to do is how do we then unleash this for everybody? So that we're just this army that is just mobilized because you know needs that we don't need. We don't know. You are in places that God has placed you in. And we want to support you in it. But it takes all of us one of the ways that we're going to try to do this is to have some kind of a call to action. I don't even know how this is going to flesh out, but I have one step for you to take today if you want to be a part of this. But just a call to action, like a, a ringing of the bell, if you will. And so you, your neighbor that you've been sharing the gospel with, their basement floods. And so we ring the bell and 20 people show up and clear out all the furniture and everything out of their basement. And when they ask why you get to say, because that's how God's family works. This is what the kingdom looks like. And we get to say, if they say, well, why are you helping me? I don't know you. We get to say, because Sue loves you, and we love Sue, and we're her family because of Jesus. And maybe that sounds weird to you, and if it does, that's because it is weird that's what the early church, I can't stress that enough, the early church was so attractive to the world around them because they were so weird. They did things that nobody else did. They gave their money to one another because they, they didn't worry about their inheritance because they were always talking about this greater inheritance. They loved their enemies because they were always talking about the one who loved them while they were his enemy. They didn't worry about their time because they were talking about things that were eternal. And what's amazing about this, what's so awesome, is think about it from the other side. So, so the basement floods, and you're sitting at home. You don't know this person, but you get the, the ring. The, the, the bell is rung, and, and you hear it. You get the message, and you're sitting with your family on a Saturday on the couch. And you get that message. And you can't respond every time, but today you can. And so you go, knowing that you are putting flesh to the gospel words that your brother or sister is speaking to their neighbor. And you know that for that day, going and giving an hour of your time to clear out that basement is going to advance the kingdom.
And I think about it as, as a dad, I so often think of how that would impact my kids to say to them, like, hey, let's go. We're going to go help some people move some stuff out of their basement. And imagine if they ask, like, well, who are we helping? And you get to say, I don't know them, but our church family needs help to show them how the kingdom of God works. Like the mission is proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. It's not kingdom of God. It's not doing good works, but our good works serve as a megaphone for the message we are proclaiming. But for this to work, we need to believe that we belong to God, that we are his family, and that we are sent on mission together. If we don't, then there will always be something better to do. There will always be people who are more important. What if every time you got that call, what if every time you found yourself in that situation, you say, ah, I can call my church family. I'm just going to trust that God's going to do something amazing here. And what if every time you got that call, you thought my brother or my sister is sharing the gospel here and I can offer support here and I can help them declare the gospel. Imagine a, a teacher at school who hears a fellow teacher lament that four of her students don't have coats in the winter. And we ring the bell. And before the school day is over, there are four coats sitting in the office. Imagine doing that for your brother or sister who's the teacher in that school who gets to go to her coworker and say, they're already in the office. It's done. My family took care of it. I mean, sometimes, like in clearing a basement, you need a small army, and sometimes you need a specialized skill. I can't tell you how many times I've shared the gospel with somebody, and then it comes around to some kind of felt need that I have no skill or ability to take care of for them. You know, the single mom who's got um, a, a, a busted pipe or whatever has a leak and doesn't have running water, and she doesn't know how to fix it, and I don't either, but to be able to ring the bell, and, you know, within 20 minutes, a retired handyman in our church has shown up, fixes it. We could do that for one another. I mean, there are hard things about being a church this size. I grieve over some of the things that are hard about being a church this size. I don't know everyone here, and that's uncomfortable for me. Like, really know everyone here. I can't meet with everyone who wants to meet. I can't be there for everybody in every situation. So we have multiple staff, and then that's why we equip people. We, I can't do it. And you can't do that for everybody else all the time. You don't know everybody else and what other needs are going on. But we can all do something. And one thing that is a strength of a church this size is that we have an army that can be mobilized behind you in your declaration and demonstration of the gospel of Jesus. So here's what I'm asking. If that stirs something in you and you say, I, I want to be a part of that. Like we're going to continue to develop conferences and resources and, and all in classes. And my hope is to continue to equip people in that and to continue to develop environments or whatever. But I just feel like this year, man, there's so many needs that I've heard and just thinking, ah, our church family could do something about this. But how, how do we get the right people connected with the right people? How do we do that? And I've just felt more and more overwhelmed by this feel, feeling of like we have to. We have to figure it out. And I know, because I know this church, I've been here long enough to know that this church responds like crazy to things like that. 
And so what I want you to do is we're going to take a first step. And, and those communication cards, I'm going to ask you before the end of the service that if you want to be a part of this and you're saying, look, I, I, I might have some skills I could offer. I don't know if I have any skills. You know, I'm gone a lot, but you know what? If I'm sitting on the couch and I get the message to go and help, like I will, I will show up. I will move a box. I will do whatever to support my brothers and sisters in the sharing of the gospel. And then I know that they'll be there for me when, when I do that. Then what I want you to do is I want you to take a card and I want you to write your name on it. And I just want you to put, I'm in. Just, I'm in. And we will collect those. And we will figure out how to mobilize this church family to put flesh and bones to the gospel that we've been declaring for decades. My prayer has been that we would have a hundred cards filled out. Someone rebuked me after the first service and said, you should ask for 200. Which is funny, because I'll just full disclosure, originally when I wrote this and I was praying this, I thought 200. I put 200. And then I thought, well, but you know, there's like 450 or so people here on a Sunday, and you know, we got a hundred kids, and we got, you know, you know, we got couples, you got whatever, and then you got the people that have fallen asleep during the service, so they won't even hear the thing. Like, so, I a hundred. So I'm just confessing that to you, that even I look at this and go, man, as big of a dreamer as I am and get as excited as I get about this, I sit there and go, ah, but could we? So I just throw that out. Grab a card, put your name on there, say, I'm in. If we don't have your contact information, make sure that you put that on there and put it in the offering box on your way out. And then pray like crazy. Pray that God would use us and that he would put you in those places where you get to declare the gospel and you get to call on the army of God to come in there and put flesh to those bones so that we can declare and demonstrate the God who loves us and redeems us and adopts us and makes us his and makes us his family and sends us out to be light in the midst of darkness. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for loving us the way that you do. And God, I know that this, it can feel overwhelming, but God, I just keep being reminded that you don't ask us to do everything. You just ask us, you ask us to be obedient with one step at a time. You don't ask us to solve world hunger. You ask us to feed our neighbor. And if we did that, then all of those who hunger would be filled. And we know, God, that one day you will do that. And until that day, God, we want to be used to demonstrate to others how your kingdom works. Thank you, God, that we get to be a part of a church family. Thank you, God that you have called us your own. Thank you for sending us out. God, would you equip us? Would you give us courage? Let us follow you radically. God, if you'd be so kind, we want to see you do great things. We ask this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.